Because of you-know-what in certain areas, and you-know-what-I'm-talking-about, why all the code speak? What's that about? Well, uh, here's what that's about. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Making Contact, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Bradcast, and Decode DC. My name is August T. Tinson. In 1955, I tried to become a registered voter because I had gone to the service. So when I came out of the service, I thought I should register, you understand? But since it made for me to go to the service and fight for a flag when I didn't have the right to vote. So I started down there at Blackman Parish Courthouse and I had to take a written test I, I passed the test, but she, the, the registered voter kept telling me I didn't make it. Every day I went there, and I went there for a whole solid year. And every day I went there, she tell me, you didn't make it. And they tell me, come back the next day. I did that for a year. And finally, I think it was in 1956 or Something like that, 57, I became a registered voter. You were called names, and after we, we started it, then we had, like, I think it was three older men that joined us to try to become registered voter, you understand? And when we went there and they had a preacher that was with us, his name was Reverend Hardy, and every time she, he came in there, the, the registered voter was there, oh, here comes the big black you understand? And, we couldn't argue because the preacher would tell us, leave her alone, which we did. Well, when we took her to court, her name was Ethel Fox. That was the register of order. And when they took her to court, we had to go to court with her. And when the judge called, told her to get up there and tell me the Constitution of the United States, she busted out crying. But we had to repeat the Constitution of the United States to her before we become registered voter. And I tell you, I did some bad things because I was young at the time. And they told us when we go back home, don't tell her nothing, leave her alone. But I got on the phone and I called her. I said, you sure made a fool out yourself. You made us recite the Constitution of the United States and you couldn't do it. And I hanged up on her. Stories like August Hinson's were common, and while the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did ban unequal application of voter registration requirements, it still wasn't enough. Joining us to talk about the struggle to protect basic voting rights for all Americans is Gary May. He's a professor of history at the University of Delaware and the author of Bending Toward Justice, The Voting Rights Act and the Transformation of American Democracy. He starts us off in Selma, Alabama, where the conditions of racial intolerance would set the stage for the Voting Rights Act. Selma was the county seat of, of Dallas County, and about 57% of the population uh, were African-American, but only 1% were registered to vote. 
Bernard Lafayette, in early 1963, he went to uh, Selma, Alabama, to uh, create a voting rights movement. He found there, already in existence, a voting rights movement that had been alive over 25 years. It was headed by Sam and Amelia Boynton, and they had been working for voter registration but had not made much progress. By that time, Sam Boynton was in a nursing home. Lafayette went to visit him, and the first thing Boynton would ask would be, have you registered yet? A voteless people, he said, is a hopeless people. And so Lafayette attempted to bolster the movement that was already in existence. And he was able to create workshops where African Americans were prepared to go down to the courthouse where the registrar's office was open. African Americans who showed up at the registrar's office often found it closed. The registrars, who of course were all white, they would come to work late and they would leave early. If African-American applicant was lucky enough and all three registrars, which were required to be there, were there, they had to take two tests. One was an oral test. Then there was a written test. Among the questions, they'd have to interpret a clause of the Alabama state constitution. Now, white applicants who took a similar test, the clause they had to interpret contained only eight words. African-Americans, however, had to interpret a clause that contained 260 words. And then can you also talk about Freedom Day and how that became sort of a turning point in the the movement to gain voting rights? That particular day, Freedom Day, was in October of 1963. Several hundred African-Americans showed up early in the morning uh, at the registrar's office And uh, they were forced to stand there most of the day. The local sheriff, who uh, was an absolute monster, Jim Clark, refused them from leaving the line to go to the bathroom or to get something to eat. And every effort to secure the right to vote in Selma was beaten back. But Amelia Boynton, taking over after her husband died in 1963, in late 1964, invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to launch a movement there on March 7, 1965. Dr. King knew that George Wallace planned to block the march from Selma uh, to Montgomery, and he was concerned that there would be violence So on the morning of March 7th, he actually decided that the the march should not occur. And he sent one of his top aides, Andrew Young, call the march off. By the time that uh, Young arrived in Selma, he could already see this mass of Alabama state troopers and Clark's troops, which he called his posse, armed and waiting on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where the marchers would cross. The marchers, 600 strong, were ready to go. It was impossible to turn them back. Young called Dr. King, explained the situation, and King said, well, if you think that they're only going to be arrested. And so uh, that afternoon, after prayer, they marched to the bridge and were confronted by the state troopers and Clark's posse. 
troopers on horseback with electric cattle prods. Amelia Boynton was beaten. Future Congressman John Lewis was struck in the head. Someone called for an ambulance, and Sheriff Clark said, let the buzzards eat them. Also present that day were photojournalists, and they got the attack of marchers being beaten and tear gassed. They got it on film. Film was rushed to New York. ABC broke the news first. Americans watching the footage and then seeing photographs in the following morning's paper were just stunned. They could not believe that this kind of thing could happen in America. Peaceful marchers being assaulted by this, this army of troops. People rushed to Selma to join King's movement. They marched on Washington, calling for a voting rights bill, besieged Lyndon Johnson in the White House. Johnson was sympathetic to a voting rights bill, but the 1964 Act had been passed only the previous July, and he didn't think the Congress and the country was ready for another civil rights bill. But Bloody Sunday, as it came to be called, changed everything. Johnson was able to put that bill at the top of his legislative agenda, and he gave a historic speech in which he said that the the hero of this story was the American Negro. Their courage had awakened the conscience of the nation. On March 17th, the bill was introduced in the Congress, and it had some difficult going and was not finally signed into law until August 6th, 1965. What were the key components of the Voting Rights Act that really sort of changed the landscape for voters, um, for you know, for particularly African Americans? Well, it was first of all a bill to enforce the Fifteenth Amendment, which made it illegal to prevent people from voting on the basis of race, color, and condition of previous servitude. It had a number of provisions. The most controversial one was Section 5. Section 5 required those states which were covered by the Voting Rights Act. These were states that uh, had the worst voting records in terms of uh, African Americans voting based on on a formula of voting in the 1964 presidential election. Those states which were covered, and they were mostly in the South, they were required to submit any changes in voting practices to the Justice Department or a Washington, D.C. federal court and to receive the permission, it was called preclearance, before they could make any change. This proved to be an extraordinarily effective part of the Voting Rights Act because it acted as a deterrent from southern states making changes that were injurious to African-American voting. Even when they went ahead and did it anyway, the Justice Department would strike it down. The Supreme Court in June of 2013 actually struck down Section 4, the formula that allowed Section 5 to go into effect. So the act was really gutted. It was severely weakened by the conservative uh, majority. There are other provisions of the Voting Rights Act, which allows the Justice Department and other interested parties to launch lawsuits, but it's not as good as when Section 5 could work. Now requires 
a much longer, more difficult legal process. What happened in 2010, the Republicans swept the country. Many, many governors and state legislatures became completely Republican. And it's at that point that you begin to have in so many of these states, these efforts to require a a voter ID, cutting back on the days when you could vote, and that we're going to continue to have these kinds of efforts to suppress the vote, and they'll have to be fought day by day, place by place in the courts. We know implicitly, and because Republicans have been caught admitting this uh, more than once, that low income and disproportionately non-white parts of the country where it's expected that voters will lean towards Democrats are targeted for voter suppression. This includes particularly stringent voter ID laws, which are often defended as, hey, it's a free ID, which we now know isn't really free because the documents you need to get the free ID actually cost money. We know about limiting early voting and limiting voting hours in general. We knew that this was hugely racially tinged, and we now have a new study which has identified an additional form of modern voter suppression that is hugely racially tinged, and that is long voting lines. The Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies looked at data from the Cooperative Congressional Election Study, and what they wanted to calculate was What's the average long polling place wait time? And then how does that correlate to race? I doubt most people in our audience will be shocked by this graph, which shows us that black voters have double the average wait time of white voters. And you will see that blacks have the longest average wait times at 23 minutes, whereas whites have the shortest average wait time as 12 minutes. Uh, The ranking goes whites. Native Americans, Asian Americans, Latinos, and then African Americans. Of course, Native Americans having very, very low wait times because a significant portion of their voting is happening in particularly rural areas where they actually have more of a say of how those voting places are organized. Thus, it is a minority group that has not been negatively affected by these Republican tactics. Now, why is this happening? The study points to two reasons. Number one is lack of resources at polling places in minority neighborhoods. And we have a bunch of studies on this. There's one from the Brennan Center, which found that three of the states with the longest wait times, Florida, South Carolina and Maryland, saw voters of color disproportionately going to polling places with fewer machines and fewer poll workers. We also see disproportionately outdated voting machines in the non-white areas. We also see uh, more errors in the voting rolls. One in eight registration records is invalid or has serious errors in some of these areas. So that's that's one explanation. The second one is cuts to early voting programs. Non-white voters tend to take advantage of early voting pro uh, uh, early voting initiatives 
at a higher rate than white voters. Part of this is related to economics. Part of this is related to geography. Part of this is related to uh, uh, other issues uh, involving for in, in the South around black areas that are big churchgoers. It's related to churches organizing to get voters to the polls for early hours on a Sunday, for example, two days before a Tuesday election. So we know we know that this is a factor. Florida reducing early voting days, a number of states reducing early voting days. So we looked at all the data. I looked at it closely this morning. My response, I'm surprised that lines are only twice as long on average for black voters than for white voters. I mean, and this is totally anecdotal, but when I voted in Western Massachusetts, I never even waited one second. I mean, it was basically all white people in the room. There were 50 voting booths or whatever you call them and 15 people in there, people trickling in. You never had to wait even for a second. Now, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, a, a much more significantly non white area, I was never registered in Brooklyn, New York. I kept my legal residence in Massachusetts when I lived there, but I walked by many times what would have been my polling place on election days. Uh, the line went out the door. People were frustrated. Many, many non white faces in those neighborhoods. And I would say, how long have you been waiting? And people saying an hour an hour and a half. We don't know what's going on. Reports of voting machines that were outdated, et cetera. And here in Boston, my polling place is in an area that basically it straddles an area of low income subsidized housing and sort of a more gentrified area. So it's pretty 50 50. And there were some pretty significant delays there and you had very few workers. I, I saw a huge line and two people checking in the entire location of voters. And it's how do you have two workers here? In Western Massachusetts, we used to have six for an area that was a fraction of the size. Uh, and so anecdotally, we've seen this. The numbers make sense. My surprise is that black people are only waiting twice as long to vote. Just like the podcast you're listening to right now, you can get practically everything on demand these days. So if you're still making trips to the post office, why not upgrade to postage on demand with stamps.com? Anything you can do from the post office, you can now do right from your desk with stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it 24-7. Now, not many people know this, but true story, about 15 years ago, before my podcasting days, as a teenager, I opened an eBay store, and I was burning gas and time making almost daily trips to the post office, but once I discovered Stamps.com, it was a no-brainer to start saving all of that time by printing my own postage and scheduling pickups. Now, of course, that eBay store is long gone, but Stamps.com is still going strong. And right now is a great time to sign up for stamps.com because they've got a very limited time special offer for my listeners when you use the promo code BEST. They'll give you a four-week free trial plus a bonus offer worth $110, including a bunch of free postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com and then before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in BEST. That's stamps.com and enter the code BEST. With 
us is Ian Milheiser. Ian is the justice editor for thinkprogress.org, and he's the author of the book Injustices, the Supreme Court's nearly unbroken history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Ian, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, always good to talk to you. And listen, so they've been uh, uh, handing down some uh, better rulings than usual, you might say, or at least allowing some rulings to stand. And we'll talk about that a little bit because they now are missing uh, their it's now an eight person court. But uh, let's talk about uh, a couple things you've covered recently. Let's start. Well, let's start with North Carolina. You wrote a piece, North Carolina tempts the wrath of an angry court with its latest round of voter suppression. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is a saga here. So shortly after the Supreme Court gutted part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, North Carolina enacted what is really the most egregious voter suppression law we've seen since Jim Crow. Um, It took various ideas like voter ID and cutting early voting and things like that that we've seen pop up in other states and sort of brought them all together into one comprehensive omnibus voter suppression law. And the thing that's really extraordinary about it is that a court dug into the record of how this law was passed, and they found that the state lawmakers literally gathered data. They, they took data on racial voting patterns. They looked at how black people like to vote. They looked at how white people like to vote. And then they specifically tailored the law so it would have maximal impact on black voters and to minimize the impact on white voters. Right. They basically um, said okay. they basically said yeah. and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but they basically said, well, let's see, uh, does do black voters do this? OK, let's outlaw that. That's exactly right. So, like, for example, one thing they did, and this brings brings us back to my most recent piece. So one thing that they did when they designed the law is they found that black people are especially likely to vote during the first week of early voting. That's a time when, you know, the the voters who turn out are disproportionately African-American. And in particular, that Sunday in that first week is especially popular with black voters. The reason why is because a lot of black churches have what are called souls to the polls events, where you, you go to the Sunday service and then immediately the whole church leaves the church and they go and they vote together. Um, and so the legislature decided, well, we will just we'll cut that first week and we're definitely going to cut that first Sunday. But we don't want black people to vote. And, and that's how they designed the law. Um, what has happened is that a court, a uh, federal appeals court, struck down this law saying you're not allowed to engage in this kind, these kinds of racist shenanigans when you design your law. And the state has responded to that court order, which said they had to restore the early voting by, at least in some places, saying, okay, well, we're just going to have not very many hours of early voting. Or we're only going to offer early voting in um, – we're only going to offer early voting in one location that's really inconvenient to get to. And we certainly going to, aren't going to offer it on that Sunday. Um, since I wrote that piece, there was a meeting of the State Board of Elections. Some of these plans were approved. Some of them weren't approved. But the point is that you know, in many counties, they responded to this decision saying you can't cut early voting in this way by saying, oh, yeah, we will. 
Well, you know, a, a couple thoughts on this, and I want to get your reaction, Ian. First of all, I have to say, I am compelled to say by my conscience that these are, in my estimation, objectively bad human beings. I mean, this to me is classic uh, 50s and 60s era, apartheid level, Jim Crow level, racist exclusion of a part of the electorate based on their skin color. Am I missing something? Am I being unfair to anyone here? I mean, it's certainly despicable what they are up to. I, I mean, I do think that there is a distinction between what's going on here and what happened in Jim Crow, though, that, that, that's very important. And the, the distinction is that in Jim Crow, what, 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 what was going on is that you had racists who didn't want people to vote because they were black. They right. didn't care who the black person was voting for. They, they thought that if you were black, you shouldn't have the right to vote. Now what's going on is you have Republican lawmakers who are using race as a proxy for partisanship. Right. Mm -hmm. So like in North Carolina, most of the black voters are Democrats. And if you're white, you're much more likely to be a Republican. So they figured out that if they prevent black people from voting, what they're going to do is they're going to prevent a lot of Democrats from turning out to the polls. And so this is, I mean, this is something new. And the reason why the distinction is important is because the courts, you know, I, I think that more liberal judges haven't struggled with this, but some judges have really struggled with the fact that on the one hand, like if a state were to say, we don't want you to vote because you're black, that's unconstitutional, that's illegal. But there's some judges who have struggled to understand that if you use race as a proxy for party, the fact that what you're really going after is partisan discrimination and not race discrimination shouldn't make it any more legal uh, than if you have a different motive. You know, it's actually it's a great point, and, I, and I'm glad you responded that way. We're talking with Ian Milheiser of Think Progress because it, it, it is, while it's still immoral and unethical and antithetical to the democratic process, it, it raises a different sort of cluster of moral issues, doesn't it? Because if you are uh, discriminating by race, but your goal is that's really just um, a utilitarian decision because your goal is really to prevent the votes of people that will might vote are likely to vote against you, uh, you are still discriminating by race. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the fact that, you know, I'm sure that these North Carolina Republicans would be happy to have Clarence Thomas come down to their state and cast right. a vote because they know who, they, who he's going to vote for. Right. Um, doesn't change the fact that what they are doing here is they're engaging in race discrimination. Right. Um, and, you know, and then I'll, and I'll say one other thing, too, which is a problem we have with, with our current law, which is that it is very clear under our current law that you can't engage in race discrimination, which is why a lot of these cases where laws are passed really for the purpose of rigging election for Republicans are often framed as race discrimination cases. Mm -hmm. If you're a lawyer and you want to win your case, you're more likely to win if you bring it as a race discrimination case rather than saying this was partisan rigging. But why can't you bring a law saying this law is wrong because it tries to rig the election for one party or the other? Well, that was exactly, um, uh, Ian Milheiser, that was going to be exactly my next question, which right. is I get the strategy legally uh, uh, of framing these as race discrimination laws. 
Is there a gap in, and is there a law that hasn't been passed that should have been passed, or is the Constitution in some way unclear about the note that it's wrong to uh, suppress the votes of entire segments of the population because you disagree with their politics? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's—I don't think the Constitution is particularly ambiguous on this. I mean, we have a First Amendment which protects the freedom of speech. The court has said for a very long time that part of the core of the freedom of speech is that the government can't engage in viewpoint discrimination. So, mm-hmm. you know, the government couldn't say like we're only going to pass out welfare checks to people who oppose abortion or something like that. You know, they're, they're not allowed to say that you get one set of. You get one set of laws or one set of benefits, you believe one thing, and you get a different set if you believe something else. Well, that's what so many of these laws are doing, is they're saying, like, you know, we are going to try to design our election system um, so that you have one set of voting rights if you're a Republican, another set if you're a Democrat. Um, You know, the most egregious example of it, and one of the most common examples of it, is partisan gerrymandering, which is what gerrymandering is, is you're drawing the maps to make it so that one party's votes effectively count more than the other party's votes. And I don't see how that's not a First Amendment violation. Um, What the Supreme Court has said about partisan gerrymandering, um, several justices have said said that they, they don't want to decide those cases at all. They won't even touch them. Um, and, you know, depending on what happened in the next, uh, you know, depending on what happens in this election, who gets to appoint the next Supreme Court justice, I think one of the most important, if not the most important issues that's likely to reach the Supreme Court in the next few years is whether we're going to rethink those partisan gerrymandering cases and whether we're going to say that it is just as un- unconstitutional to say we're going to discriminate against a voter because of who we think we're, they're going to vote for as it is to do something to engage in something like race discrimination. Yeah. And, and, and I guess the challenge, unless we get the right Supreme Court justice, I guess the challenge is, for example, in North Carolina, they can always say, well, you know, our decision to curtail Sunday voting is not discriminating against anybody on their viewpoint. Republicans can't vote on a Sunday either. But it, 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 that w- could be a counter argument. But it's a it, it's a specious one, in my opinion, because uh, it's clearly designed to suppress the vote of one group. But in, in, in we have about a minute left, Ian, and I guess I would also want to ask you about your piece on what's going on in Texas. Uh, sure uh, can you just briefly bring us up to date on that? Sure. So we got good news, surprisingly good news from a conservative court, the Fifth Circuit, um, a little while back, which said that Texas voter ID law is illegal. Voter ID is a scheme um, to suppress votes because it targets in-person voter fraud, which doesn't really exist. Um, the law was struck down. The, there was a court order which said that the state had to allow anyone to vote who cannot reasonably get an ID. Mm-hmm. And the state has now been pushing, sending out, training its poll workers, sending out materials, saying that essentially you can't, you can only vote um, if you don't have an ID, and it is impossible for you to get an ID, um, and that's that's not what the court said, and that, that that you know that makes a big difference. If you have to draw, if you have to sit on the bus and wait in line for eight hours to get your ID, it's not impossible. 
for you to get it. Right. But it's not it's also not reasonable to expect you to do it. So it matters a lot that Texas is um, not following what the court told them they have to do here. So they're violating a court order here. And may I say, at the risk of being unprofessional, engaging in pretty dickish behavior. Headed down to Raleigh, but we ended up in Charlotte. Wound up in Lebanon and root the big stone gap. On the way home, we said hi and bye, Kentucky. Bizarre behavior in the key of the map. Let's relate like family love. March fans look better from above. Sure. Everything is on the up and up. You've been reading the same stories as I've been reading. So go to your place and vote and go pick some other place and go sit there with your friends and make sure it's on the up and up. Because you know what? That's what? a big, big problem in what this is? country and nobody wants to talk about it. I'll talk nobody about it. Nobody has the guts to talk about it. I got the guts. So go and watch these polling places Make sure it's on the up and up. Please. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, I, yeah, I'll talk about it. I got no problem talking about it. I talk about it all the time. I got the guts to talk about it, Donald Trump. Not a problem. Uh, now, he's speaking, you know, he doesn't say it outright. He doesn't say the word voter fraud outright. He doesn't say who he's talking about, which areas he's talking about. A lot of code speak there. The code speak uh, got even more dense on Saturday night in Mannheim, uh, Pennsylvania, on this very topic. You've got to go out and you've got to get your friends and you've got to get everybody you know. And you got to watch your polling booths because I hear too many stories about Pennsylvania, certain areas. Certain areas. I hear too many bad stories, and we can't lose an election because of you know what I'm talking about. You know what? So no, go what? and vote and then go check out areas because a lot of bad things happen, and we don't want to lose for that reason. So because of you know what in certain areas and you know what I'm talking about, what, what's he talking about? Uh, what areas? Who are certain uh, these certain areas that he wants people to go watch? And why won't he say what these areas are? You know what I'm talking about. Why all the codes speak? What's that about? Well, uh, here's what that's about. Uh, the Republican Party is still under a federal consent decree from uh, back from 1982 that they signed. This is uh, what I can't do the math. 15, 16 years ago, something like that. Longer? 82, 92. Well, it's like 20 something years, maybe. I don't know. I can't do the math. <laughs> and I'm not speaking in code. I just can't do the math on the fly. But um, I. The Republican Party is has been ordered by a federal court. They are in big trouble if they target, as he likes to say, certain areas. They cannot target. They are not allowed to target, to racially target certain areas. 
And um, that would be the Republican Party and agents of the Republican Party. Now, is the Republican nominee considered to be an agent of the Republican Party? Well, apparently, because Donald Trump is being very, very careful with what he's talking about there. Uh, Politico speaks about uh, this uh, this consent decree very specifically. So let me uh, let me read you a little bit from Politico so you understand what it is that Donald Trump is trying to not say out loud. And then I'll tell you how even if he did say it out loud, it's all stuff and nonsense. I'll get to that in a second. So uh, Trump's vision of police watching the polls. This is something that he had uh, said a couple of months ago that uh, he's going to you know, make calls to the police. Well, police, very specifically in this consent decree, whether uniformed or non-uniformed, are also not allowed to target areas based on racial profiling when it comes to election fraud, according to this uh, this uh, federal court order from the 80s. So uh, Politico writes, uh, Trump's vision of police watching the polls and his vague call for supporters to, quote, go down to certain areas and watch sounds a lot like an aggressive and notorious voter intimidation campaign during New Jersey's 1981 governor's race. That year, they write, Republicans challenged voters at the polls in minority precincts, and they dispatched armed off-duty police and deputy sheriffs to patrol polling places in minority neighborhoods, wearing armbands at the time that read, quote, National Ballot Security Task Force. Ever since, a federal court has barred the Republican National Committee from organizing ballot integrity or anti-fraud efforts that specifically target minority neighborhoods. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Certain areas, as Donald Trump now calls them. The order does not apply to candidates, Politico says, but it could limit Trump because candidates usually turn to local parties to find poll watchers. Now, it's unclear that it doesn't apply to candidates per se. Uh, it does uh, apply to agents of the uh, of the party. So, you know, Make of that what you will. But that's one of the reasons why he's being so very careful with his words here. That was back in uh, in 1981. And then in 2003, despite that court order, someone tried the same 1981 intimidation strategy in the Philadelphia mayor's race. Men wearing suits with law enforcement lapel pins and carrying clipboards drove around black neighborhoods in Philly in unmarked vans. They watched voters go to the polls and asked many of them for their identification. Some had warned falsely that voters could be arrested at the polls if they owed uh, if they owed child support. That's an old trick, an old dirty trick. The incident remains infamous in progressive election protection circles. Indeed, it does. That was 2003. And then in 2004, please remember that there were hundreds, as Politico writes, hundreds of University of Pittsburgh students who waited for hours to vote in the presidential election in Pennsylvania. The local Democratic Party alarmed at the bottleneck. They handed out pizza and water to encourage the students to stay in line. Pittsburgh Steelers Hall of Famer Franco Harris worked the line armed with a giant bag of Dunkin Donuts. Uh, the stalled line, however, was not because of huge turnout back in 2004. It was because of what was happening at the check-in desk. The attorneys for the Republican Party were challenging the credentials of pretty much every young voter who showed up. 
says Pat Clark, a Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh activist and registered Democrat who was working for an election protection group that day. So basically, just by challenging people at the polling place, they were able to hold up the line and make it so that people had to wait hours and hours to even cast their vote. And this is something that is still allowable in the state of Pennsylvania. A lot of states have said, you, you know, you can observe, you can watch what's going on, um, but but you can't challenge voters. You can't stop their vote from being uh, stop them from casting a normal ballot uh, or force them to to cast a provisional ballot. But in uh, in Pennsylvania, you kind of still can. And that's what uh, Donald Trump was was speaking towards uh, in his in his code speak over the weekend in Pennsylvania and in Michigan. Uh, Politico goes on to write that in 2004, some of the University of Pittsburgh students who were caught in the interminable line arrived at the front to discover that they were not registered in the poll books at all. Some of them were victims of another dirty trick that was played on college campuses in three states that year. Canvassers sent out by GOP operatives had gotten students to sign petitions supporting medical marijuana or lower car insurance rates and then use their information to submit bogus changes to their voter registrations. So that happened in Pennsylvania. That also, I recall, happened out here in California, happened elsewhere around the country where they would, you know, uh, tell them they were, uh, please, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do med medical marijuana or helping uh, cancer patients, children's cancer uh, hospitals and so forth. Can you sign here? And then they would use that signature to fill out a change of registration form in some fashion to either cancel their registration or move it. Um, it, it's a dirty trick. It's a classic dirty trick. That also seems to me uh, some of the problem that happened during the primary election where people felt they had been registered as Democrats for years. They got to the polls and they found out they were no longer registered at all or they were registered as uh, as Republicans. So, again, I'm going to urge people to check your registration, even if you think you are registered. Check your registration. Make sure you're registered. Make sure you're registered in the location you think you are registered uh, to vote in. Check to make sure your name is accurate on on your registration, especially in states where they're now uh, uh, where, you know, that are run by Republicans and they're becoming more and more. Uh, strict about ID concerns, whether those ID concerns are real or not, whether they're legal or not. But check, because that's what's going on. And that's what's wrong. Today's episode is sponsored by The Gromit, a unique online retail store that's been built from the ground up to help you consume responsibly and shop your values. They start with a focus on small businesses and independent inventors and stock their store with unique items across a variety of categories. And every weekday, they introduce a new product. What I like most about them is that in order to help you shop your values, they provide categories for all of their items, like for things related to philanthropy, things built by social enterprises, or items made to last a lifetime so you don't have to worry about replacing them down the road. 
A Gromit staffer even gave me this pro tip for you. He said, search in their store for the keywords multi-tool, two words. This will bring up all of their items with several functions, so you can multiply the value you get out of any single item and reduce the total number of purchases you make and all the items you own. It's not often you find a retail outlet willing to walk that line, so if you're going to consume the way we all have to, at least to some extent, then do it thoughtfully and responsibly, and the Gromit is a good place to do just that. Visit thegromit.com slash left today and receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. That's thegromit.com slash left and receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. I'm the same, I'm the same. And that's what's wrong. That's what's wrong. That's what's wrong. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism get out the vote, and report voter suppression. To be clear, this election is rigged, but only because eligible voters are being denied their right to vote. Millions are already voting, and it's not going well. They're being taken off the rolls in North Carolina because their address changed. Across the country, trans people are being barred from voting because their presented gender doesn't match their ID card. In Wisconsin, they have limited access to polling places because Republican officials have determined that having more voting locations helps Democrats. In Ohio, their ballots are being thrown out if a voter makes a single clerical error. Voter registration drives are being raided by the police in Indiana. And this is also the first election in 50 years without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. So that's the lay of the land, and it's not even election day yet. Voter suppression is how democracy ends. If you have been denied your right to vote, report it immediately and get help by calling 866-OUR-VOTE. If you have questions about the voter ID laws in your state, call the Vote Riders National Voter ID Hotline at 844-338-8743. The best way to counter voter suppression this close to the election is to volunteer to help get out the vote. NextGen Climate is currently running a $25 million get-out-the-vote campaign with a heavy focus on turning out young Americans concerned about climate change, reproductive rights, criminal justice reform, and other major issues that will impact their future. They're driving college students to the polls, enlisting volunteers to call voters in swing states from the comfort of their own homes, providing get-out-the-vote strategy calls for all volunteers, and producing videos with celebrities to appeal to undecideds and those thinking about staying home. Full disclosure, this organization does favor Hillary Clinton, but their primary goal is getting voters to the polls, period. Sign up to be a volunteer to help get out the vote at nextgenclimate.org backslash volunteer. Today and after November 8th, we encourage you to make fighting voter suppression and restoring the Voting Rights Act part of your theory of change by getting involved in the long term with organizations like the Brennan Center for Justice, Democracy Awakening, Democracy Spring, Voto Latino, The Advancement Project, the NAACP, and other organizations fighting to make democracy work for everyone. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if having a real democracy that works for everyone is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about getting out the vote and reporting voter suppression via social media so that others in your network can take action too.
All right, Victoria, talk to me about voter fraud. Does it exist, or is it like like the man on the moon? Well, I think most Americans are familiar with Tammany Hall, and mm-hmm. they've heard all sorts of stories about you know stealing elections in the 19th century, throwing ballot boxes into the river and intimidating voters. And so that that kind of history is like a cloud that hangs over our contemporary understanding of voter fraud. We think it's, you know, kind of rife, but it's not. Voter fraud is minuscule. You know, it's sort of like saying because you've got, you know, a pimple on your arm, it means you've got cancer running throughout your entire system. <laughs> not not so. Tell me how or show me or give me some sort of nugget I can chew on if I believed in the conspiracy theory of voter fraud. Is there anything out there that you can give me? Jimmy, virtually every study that's been conducted on incidences of voter fraud in America on have have concluded that it is de minimis, that is it is simply not there in a way that impacts our democracy and our system. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. When you go online and kind of type in voter fraud, you're going to see news stories that come up that sort of say this election official in Kentucky was arrested because he or she switched the numbers on a machine. So you're going to see lots of little anecdotal stories of Mm -hmm. this. But when you add up all of these anecdotal stories, they amount to maybe 321 cases over a billion votes that have been cast in the last five elections. So what what's happening is we're being led by stories that are that are very colorful about voter fraud but we're failing to see the forest for the trees if if you will. I want to talk about this idea of and this is my Republican friends are always so good about this. I love them and they talk about dead people in Chicago voting. Yeah, that's uh it's a it's a it's a fabulous story and again virtually every single study that's been done that's tried to analyze whether or not dead people are voting has been debunked. A few years ago, there were allegations of exactly that happening in South Carolina, Jimmy, in your home mm-hmm. state. Yep. And um, and and what happened is a group of Republicans went through and they found all of these dead people who had voted. I think they said something like 300 dead people had voted or something like that. When someone went back and carefully cross-checked the list, what they found was that there was a lot of confusion over names. So uh, John Smith versus a John Smythe was voting. And when they when they actually called up the people who had voted, they found they were real people. So, uh, so they weren't dead. They were dead. They were alive, and they actually voted. <laughs> That's good, right? Uh, nevertheless, the, the the truth is that uh, our voter registration rolls are and can be a little bit of a mess, mm-hmm. and we've got extensive regulations uh, di- dictating when voter rolls can be purged and cleaned up. Uh, so uh, it makes it kind of hard for registrars of voters to clean up and to kind of wholesale eliminate people from the list. There's a good reason for that. And the reason is, is that we'd rather have slightly messy voter rolls than disenfranchise people en masse. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we try to make sure that when you vote, 
you you are checked off. You you present some form of identification. You know, it can be your utility bill, it can be your employer ID, your student ID, or something like that. So we make sure that the people who are coming to the polls are actual people, that they are who they say they are, and then we take their ballots. And so that's how we make sure that ves- messy registration rules don't slip into voter fraud. All right. So then if, if, if the, even if the rolls are messy, once you vote, then, I mean, like you, it's, it's almost as if you've been taken out of the picture, out of the picture. You can't go do that again. So I, I mean, I, I, I don't understand how people can vote five or 10 or 30 times. How can that happen? Well, I actually asked Michael Brandy, who's the head of elections enforcement in Connecticut, whether or not I could do that. I asked him how, if I wanted to, could I vote 10 times? The the truth is you wouldn't be able to vote 10 times um, because when you appear at the polling place, you've already registered to vote, so you're on the voting rolls. So you've already gone through the process of registering to vote in some manner. When you show up at the polling place, you're going to be asked to provide some form of identification, not photo ID, but some form of identification. If you have nothing with you at all, Connecticut has a process where you could fill out an affidavit, and through that affidavit, uh, you'd be given a ballot. Now, it's a provisional ballot at that point because they have to certify that um, your your um, uh, based on your your certification on that affidavit that you are in fact the person and you are voting in the right district and it's you on the voter rolls. Um, to show up and try to impersonate somebody, um, I, I'm just not sure how you would do that. Uh, you are still required to give some type of identification. It could be a, um, a phone bill. It could be your electric bill with your, a credit card with your signature on it. Um, it, it's usually multiple kinds of identification that you need to provide to verify that the person that's on the voter rolls is you. Um, now, so, so if mm-hmm. I wanted to do it, I suppose the, the first thing I need to do is find the names of some other registered people who, right? So right. I'm like, you know, I, and presumably they'd have, to, they should be women. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'd also have to be reasonably certain that they weren't themselves going to show up that day. Correct. So, and, so and, you, right. So yeah, you have to make sure ahead. they're not already there to vote. And you're also going to have to somehow acquire some type of identification to show that, um, you know, Jane Doe, who lives at 23 Smith Street, you have some form of identification, whether it's your utility bills that you somehow had to acquire. Um, it, it would be a real process to try to engage and steal one vote. Um, and that's probably and the then, reason And then why. if you caught me, what would you do to me? If we caught you, you would be subject to um, uh, the criminal, the criminal uh, violations of voter fraud. Um, under 9-360, uh, fraudulent voting would subject you to a fine of somewhere between three and $500 and a jail sentence of between one and two years. Uh, and that's written in 9-360 of the Connecticut General Statutes. So to risk that, to vote for one person and impersonate one person doesn't seem to be to be a great, uh, uh, you know, the cost benefit there doesn't seem to, to match up. So why... Why all of this push for, you know, kind of strict voter ID that you hear about across the United States? Great question. Um, You know, looking in the state of Connecticut, we're just simply not um, seeing these types of of, um, voter impersonation situations. We don't know why a photo ID would be required. Um, 
it's, it's to me, it's the proverbial, um, you know, solution in search of a problem here. So, Jimmy, if this were 1888 and you and I were Tammany Hall bosses, right. we, we might be able to vote 10 times. But it's the 21st century. We've got a modern election system that's heavily regulated, that's overseen by multiple political officials and on multiple levels. It's simply not possible in the modern era to do what Tammany Hall bosses were able to do in 1888. And and to be clear here, this is not about, I mean, Trump is running around saying that there's massive voter fraud and it's rigged, blah, 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 blah. This is this has nothing to do with the federal election. I mean, he's running for president. That is a federal office. But the bottom line is the feds are not involved in this issue. They're just not. This is a state, a county, and a precinct level issue, if at all. I mean, it, voting is is determined by those entities. The federal government does just doesn't get involved in it for the most part. I want to make that really clear to our listeners here, right? Yeah, there there are a few federal regulations or rules governing election. For example, registration forms are sort of like are regulated on a on a national level. But by and large, our election system is administered by as many as ten thousand individual election districts. It's diffused and spread across the entire United States. The rules and regulations are set uh, almost on a block by block basis. I mean, that's an exaggeration. But, you know, when when you kind of think about who's running the election system, it really is the people in your neighborhood. It really is your local elected officials who are in charge. And because Ironically, because we've got these 10,000 voter districts, what it means is that it's impossible to rig an, a, a federal or a national election. How are you going to get 10,000 people together, more than 10,000 people, 100, 170,000 people who are running elections to rig it? Just can't happen. Okay, but can we go back to what Mr. Brandy said? This idea that this is this uh, this thing of voter ID—it's it's the proverbial solution in search of a problem. I tend to come down on the side of why not have voter ID? Let's just take it off the table completely. Get rid of the talking point. Everybody gets some sort of voter ID, whether it's a driver's license or state issued vote um, ID card or a, a state issued voting ID card or anything along those lines. Let's just make it so that every single person that shows up to vote has a photo ID that costs them zero dollars. And then when they go, they hand it to their precinct person, they see them, they check their face, they know that that's them, they check their name off and they go vote and there's no voter fraud. Why not have that? Jimmy, we already do. There is no state in the union that doesn't require some form of identification in order to vote in person. The only thing that we're debating about right now is the detailed which particular type of identification a person is required to present. And the kind of identification that you are describing is very hard to get for a lot of people. The evidence in the studies indicate that as many as 21 million Americans do not have state-issued photo identification. So, But why can't they get but, – but here's my question. Why can't they get them? Well, great question. I talked to Judy Brown-Dianis, a leading civil rights attorney, about this. So the voter ID provision, you know, and this is what folks need to understand. People often think, oh, it's voter ID. It's, you know, photo ID. Everybody has photo ID. Not true. There are people like one of our plaintiffs who didn't have a birth certificate. 
especially for for some elderly African-Americans, especially in southern states who weren't born in a hospital or were born in a segregated hospital that no longer exists. Those folks don't have access to birth certificates. What about if you were born at home by a midwife, you know, and then you have people who have gotten married? I mean, in Missouri, we represented someone in a voter ID case where the person had gotten married and her name wasn't what was on her birth certificate and she didn't have her marriage certificate. She'd been married for, you know, over 30 years. And so, you know, these extra hurdles that it takes and, you know, it is what we consider to be a modern day poll tax because you then have to go pay for, even though these states will make the ID free, you have to pay for the underlying documents. And sometimes for people, they actually don't either have the money for those underlying documents or they actually can't get their hands on it. So and at the end of the day, we really have to look at the reason. Why are we doing this? There was no voter fraud. Right. There's case after case in these voter ID cases where no one has proved up that they actually were solving some problem. Right. But, but you know, people think there's a problem when you listen to when you have public opinion polls, they think there's a real problem with voter fraud and people think it's perfectly reasonable to require identification to vote. You, you have to show ID to get into buildings, to board a, a plane. You know, so, right. so how do you how how do you explain to people? Yeah. We have to understand, like, even in Wisconsin, we filed a lawsuit years ago around voter ID in Wisconsin. And one of the um, studies that was done in Wisconsin showed that 78 percent of young African-American males did not have the kind of ID that was required. Um, there are a lot of people in this country who do not interact with state and local governments, Right that that is not where their life is. And so we can't assume just because some of us have privilege enough to get on planes that everybody has an ID. And by the way, TSA does actually not require a state-issued photo ID to get on a plane. You can look at their website. You can use a credit card. You can prove up your identity in a different way. And, you know, so we've been fed a lot of hogwash around this issue and we've started to believe it, unfortunately. But you're okay with some form of ID at, to vote, right? You, so, I mean, yeah. I think that the federal law that requires ID, like the first time that you vote, you registered and voting, which gives a range of IDs is fine, right? But we don't have to be more restrictive. And again, if we think about why we're being more restrictive, if it's not for voter fraud, because that does not exist, then we've got to look at the real reason. And if the real reason is that there are some people in this country that think that some Americans should not have access to the ballot, should not be able to participate in our democracy, then that's when we have a problem. We just heard clips today, starting with making contact with a discussion revisiting the hard-fought battles for voting rights. The David Pakman Show reported on the study showing that, all things being equal, black people still wait twice as long as white people to vote. R.J. Eskow was the guest host on the Tom Hartman program when he interviewed Ian Milheiser about the systematic voter suppression happening in the states. Brad Friedman on the Bradcast made the connection between a history of voter intimidation and the rhetoric we're hearing out of Donald Trump these days. Our activism for today is in support of get-out-the-vote efforts and resources to report voter suppression. And finally, Decode DC spoke with Victoria Bassetti about the myths of widespread voter fraud and the reality underlying reasons for restriction. 
restrictive voting laws. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Mike in Mountain View, in the heart of Silicon Valley, also known as South San Francisco Bay. I'm calling to ask for voters in Mountain View, San Mateo, Burlingame, and others to vote yes for rent stabilization or rent control and shed some light on a really controversial issue. The entire area is in a housing crisis, and affordable housing is not being built fast enough. This affects everyone in the Bay Area and not just lower income families and poor people of color who are being disproportionately displaced. Middle class residents who have lived in the area for years are being pushed out. Teachers, firefighters, paramedics, and even the police are no longer able to afford the rent increases. Unfair laws that allow landlords to evict with a 30-day notice tenants simply because someone else can afford to pay more, and in some cases, one-third to twice as much. Measure V in Mountain View, for example, does two main things. It requires a just cause for an eviction and limits rent increases to inflation while guaranteeing landlords a fair return. When a tenant leaves, then the landlord can adjust to the current market value for the next tenant. Landlords already have a right to a fair return law in California to ensure that they are able to still make a fair investment return. These ballot measures are not meant to be punitive or punish property owners, most of which are corporate corporate and don't live in the affected communities. For low-wage workers that serve the community, we are asking too much to spend about a quarter of their day just getting to work. This crisis, along with a lot of other factors, are killing the the diverse communities that are here right now. Everyone here knows someone that had to uproot their family and pull their children out of local schools. There are hundreds of people that don't have anywhere to go and are living in makeshift RV camps all along most of the local parks. This is all happening while landlords make windfall profits. This can't wait anymore. Please vote for renter protections in your community if you live in Alameda, Oakland, Richmond, San Mateo, Burlingame, or Mountain View. If not, then you can always start a petition and get one on your ballot for next year. This is not just a Silicon Valley or California problem. Every major American city that is facing high rents needs rent control. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in preparing today's episode, I've made myself a little angry about some things that I need to share with you. So, clearly, we're talking about voting and voting rights and voting suppression and intimidation and fraud and election fraud and all of these things. But at the, at the core of everything is we have these elections going on with the presidential election, elections in the Senate, elections in the House, and then a bunch of down ballot races. And something that is absolutely universally true across every aspect of media I have encountered in the last two years or more is that no one, not liberal, mainstream, or conservative, or just data-based media, has 
said anything about the possibility of Democrats retaking the House of Representatives. So clearly, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is, you know, some sort of media conspiracy cover-up. Everyone agrees across the entire spectrum that there is no chance whatsoever that Democrats can retake the House. And uh, I, I'm not a Democrat myself. I, I'm, I'm not super enthusiastic about them. I just hate Democrats slightly less than I hate Republicans. That's sort of where I come from. I, you know, I care much more about the policies. But Democrats, generally speaking, when you're lucky, are more likely to support the kind of policies that I support. So that's where I'm coming from on this. But the important thing to remember is that this is an epically bizarre election. I don't need to tell any of you that. So Trump is taking down the GOP like, uh, you know, the Hindenburg. And if the election turns out the way polls are currently showing, then it's possible that the Republicans will lose the Senate, which they were not really expected to do, but they may lose the Senate. They may, may lose the presidency badly. And if there was any sort of normal functions of a voting process in play here, then those same trends should also reflect themselves on the House of Representatives. But they're not. It is as if there is a complete disconnect between these things. And the reason for that is gerrymandering. Uh, also money in politics, but I think that's even to a lesser extent. I think gerrymandering is essentially completely to blame for this. And so this sounds like, okay, I'm complaining because the party that I would marginally prefer to win is not going to win in the House, and so that seems unfair. But I am taking the position that every American who believes in democracy should be irate about this, and I don't have to get into any of the weeds at all to explain it, because I, I just want to give like a refresher on, you know, high school civics. The House of Representatives was designed by the founding fathers who are revered like gods in this country to be closest to the people. This is not an accident. Every single person in the House of Representatives has an election every two years. In the Senate, they only have an election every six years. That's done on purpose. They wanted the Senate to be a slower, more contemplative body, more removed from public opinion, and uh, they didn't want for people to be able to kick out senators as often. But the House of Representatives is supposed to be a direct reflection of the mood of the people. That's one of the checks and balances that is supposed to be built into this country. And if in a year when things are so messed up that, you know, it's looking like the possibility that we could have one of the biggest blowouts in presidential race, uh, you know, in, in, you know, decades, and that the Senate may flip unexpectedly. But for the House that is supposed to be most reflective of the people to not change, again, you don't have to get into a single weed to just look at that and say, well, that's obviously fucked up. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Our system is clearly not working as designed. So that's the first thing. The second thing that was getting me mad today is 
just a clip that I heard from Brad Friedman on his show, The Bradcast. It didn't make it into today's episode, but I wanted to tell you about it. He was just telling a story about some early voters, some conservatives who had gone and attempted to, to vote straight Republican ticket on those electronic touchscreen voting machines. And the way they tell the story, I have no reason to disbelieve them. Their votes were flipped from their intended vote for Trump over to a vote for Clinton. I think the down ballots maybe stayed as Republican, but the presidential flipped. And of course, their reaction was, this looks like vote, you know, fraud, election fraud. They're trying to get me to vote for Clinton when I don't want to. And, you know, they had to get it sorted out with an election worker. And they said, you know, oh, didn't you ever notice how this never happens to Democrats, try, you know, getting flipped to vote Republican and all of that, which is fundamentally not true. I, I've heard these stories for a decade now. I think that 2004 was the first year that I started hearing about the electronic voting machines flipping votes from one party to the other. I heard plenty of stories about Republican, you know, votes for a Democrat being flipped to Republican and vice versa. And now that trend is continuing. And Brad, who's a, you know an expert on this subject and talks about it year round, says, yeah, he hears these stories all the time. It's not an indication of fraud. It's an indication that these machines are terrible. We're not talking iPads. We're talking mid-2000s era touchscreen technology bought by governments, and bought and maintained by like state and local governments. Of course, they're going to be messed up. They get you know, their calibrations are messed up. Everything goes wrong with them. Of course that that would happen. You know, you press in one place on a screen, it thinks you pressed somewhere else. It's not fraud. It's just stupid. So what got me mad is I don't care who people vote for. It, it infuriates me to think that some people may have their votes flipped because they intended one thing and accidentally voted another and didn't realize it. It makes me infuriated that these people who did catch it had to go through that hassle. Uh, I, I'm infuriated that they then think that fraud is going on when it's, you know, I suppose maybe there's fraud going on, but it's a really stupid way to even attempt to do something fraudulent when these electronic machines could be hacked in a bunch of other ways. It would be a lot easier. So much more likely is that the machines are just terrible, but now these people are questioning the legitimacy of the election based on their experience with a touch uh, machine, and that is putting cracks in the dam of the legitimacy of our democracy. Like, th that is the fundamental through line through every single one of these discussions, every discussion about voter fraud, every discussion about electronic voting machines and tabulation machines and the ability to hack through the internet, every single one of these stories, the through line is, even if it works correctly, it may not matter because democracy only works when everyone agrees to the legitimacy of the system. So even if you have a system that is technically working, but people don't believe it's working, everything has the potential to come crumbling down. So my hope is that with this recent flood of stories about Russia trying to hack America's elections, whether that's true or not, if that's what it takes to scare people into fixing our system, then more power to them. Be afraid of the scary Russians and fix our system so that they can't hack it, 
and no one else can hack it. No, you know, teenager in their basement living next door to the polling place can hack it either. Get rid of the shitty touch voting machines so that no one questions how they marked their ballot. And let's get back to a place again where we all believe in the legitimacy of the system. If you have comments on this or anything else, keep the calls coming in 202-999-3991. Quickly now before I go, thanks again to The Gromit for sponsoring today's episode. The Gromit is the online shop where you can shop your values, search for items that are built for sustainable living, designed to last a lifetime, and more. We don't need to care less about the things we own in order to save the world. We need to care more about them by choosing to own things that really add value to our lives and that are made to last. So shop thoughtfully and consume responsibly, especially during this coming holiday season, at The Gromit and get $10 off your first $50 purchase when you type in thegromit.com slash left. That's $10 off your first $50 purchase at thegromit.com slash left. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories and Past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing.